from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome sports fans, welcome business fans, and welcome analytics fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. You're listening to Sirius XM Radio, Business Radio 111, powered by the Wharton School. Uh, my, this is Eric Bradlow. I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner, some combination of the three of us, and our colleague Cade Massey are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, to talk about the world of sports, statistics, its application to business, and kind of what's going on in the world statistically in general. But of course, this is a call-in show. So obviously, the three of us are going to do a lot of talking over the next two hours. We have three wonderful guests over the next two hours, but it's a call-in show. So if you want to join the conversation... Please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. I also hope all of our fans here are following us throughout the week. We tweet quite a bit at at WMoneyBall. That's at WMoneyBall. And our producer, Matt Datz, also takes emails at uh, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So uh, good morning, guys. So what's caught your eye in sports this week? We always start with the caught our eye in sports. What's caught your eye? Australian Open, maybe? Anyone? Well, Roger Federer? The grandfather of uh, men's tennis is still winning. So if I had asked you guys, you know, we obviously, a lot of us have studied age curves in sports. If I had told you that, I think undeniably right now, the two best players in tennis, men's and women's respectively, are both 36 years old. Just from a historical perspective, you would say, I mean, it just five years ago, ten years ago, it would have been impossible to say that. Or, get out, a shout out to my friend here, Shane Jensen, the best quarterback in football is still a 40-year-old yeah. quarterback. Yeah. So, what do you guys I think? I appreciate the shout out. I feel like I really had a lot to do with it. Well, you know, <laughs> you I'm, keep I'm just saying. You keep reminding of us. You keep reminding us. It's true. It's true. It seems like, uh, I, I don't know if it's... Um, I mean, so so one could say, like, oh, maybe it's just kind of coincidental that there's, like, sort of, like, all these, you know, unprecedented, like, old-timers happening right now. Or maybe we're sort of seeing that, the, you know, advances in training well, and, and everything else well, have, have paid it, dividends. You have a specific guys. question, though, to ask you guys. And it reminded me of our horse racing guy, Jeff Cedar. From Wynnum Studios, who always told us that people Stables. Ha- Wynnum Stables, <laughs> sorry, Studios, yeah, yeah Wynnum yeah, Stables, yeah. that um, he that most people have this belief that horses speed up at the end of a race, and he told us all horses slow down, just which one slows down less. So that's my question to you. I think we'd all agree Tom Brady's not at his peak. Serena Williams is not at her peak. Roger Federer is not at his peak. Maybe what their age curve is doing is it's just not declining as fast. So is I'm just saying, do you believe that theory? It's not that they're and we you know we obviously all wrote a paper on this. They're not double humped. It's not like they went down necessarily and went back up. Their age curve has just they slowed. did take time off and Both they took them, time off, which I think is part yeah. of the longevity. I also I mean the question I keep asking my tennis uh, ex- uh, friends and experts is where are the young kids? Where are the 26-year-olds and 27-year-olds and 24-year-olds? And it, they just doesn't don't seem to be coming down the pipe. Well, they, enough they, numbers. They, they're coming down the pipe. It's just they're not coming down the pipe in America, I assume you mean. No, no I don't know. I'm talking out, internationally. Remember, where are I, they? I mean, I just pointed out now that we include Federer winning the Australian it's something like 59 of the last 63 men's Grand Slams have been won by five players. And, you know, Marin Cilic, quote-unquote, stole one. Not stole one. He won one. Uh, Del Patro won one. 
And essentially, you got to go back. I mean, there's basically, like, where are all the players? Because by this age, you even say 26, 27, Federer might have had 10 grand slams right. by that age. And Nadal may have had eight or nine. You know, Djokovic got a little later start. Certainly Andy Murray didn't. Yeah, Federer is not yeah. better now at 36 than he was at 26. That's my po- Right. That's so yeah. where are the young people? I mean, and, that, and so that could be part of it. And I don't have an answer to that. Well, well, isn't it also possible, I mean, just from a statistical perspective, he's three Sigma, four Sigma out, and, you know, there are plenty of two Sigma out players coming, and you know what? It's just, he's down to two and a half Sigma, but that's still better than they are. I think that's the case. He's, I mean, he's a pretty unprecedented tennis player. He's probably the best ever, right? And so... That's what they say. You know, I mean, there are young players, but they keep, you know, they keep losing to him. How do you, how do you guys argue, not argue, how do we think about the fact that, you know, he didn't win a major for four and a half years, People forget between. I mean, he looked the standard age curve. Yes, he did. He did at age thirty. He's basically stopped winning majors. And by the way, that age curve may well hold for Djokovic. I don't think Djokovic necessarily because of injuries and stuff. I don't think he'll ever win another major. I don't not convinced Andy Murray will win another major. Okay. I think Warinka's done winning majors now. Nadal. No, Nadal probably not Can, because of the well, French. I mean, I'll keep winning well, no, no, the French we, well, Open. But no, no. Will, will Nadal win another major besides the French Open I think for the, the rest answer of his is career? If he's, well, let's just play it out. He's 31 years old. So let's play it out two years from now. Let's use the same mathematical logic. Let's assume Federer's gone by age 38. Or, or if he's still around, he's not the Federer even that he is now. Can Nadal still be better than all the 26, 27-somethings See, two years so from now? I, I think he can. Yeah, I want to focus on the observation that, that Federer went four and a half years starting around 31 without really winning anything. And now he's coming back and he's winning again. Correct. The exp- what's the explanation for it? So if you look back at that four and a half year period, part of it, it was he took time off. Not going to win when you're not playing. Well, he was injured. And yeah. he was injured. Um, but also... If you look at it, those were the the peak, or, or Nadal and Djokovic, they were terrific at that time. Especially Djokovic. Especially Djokovic. So you can't win when you got such fierce competition staring right at your head. At this point, those two have declined somewhat, and somehow Federer Has have, may, have, have, may have plateaued, leaving, leaving him with the opportunity to, well, to, to what, pick what up, people, start picking up wins what again. a lot of people will say from a, just a perspective is, what Federer has done is also less is more. He's cut back his He's schedule. Back, yeah. And so now, instead of playing 20, 25 tournaments a year, last year he ended up number two in the world and played, I think it was 14 tournaments. Yeah. I mean, he basically plays once a month, and he didn't play, as you guys remember. In fact, the big question now is, will he even try to play the French? You know, in some sense, last year he didn't play it. Which, think about that. That gave him off, essentially, between the Australian Open... And Wimbledon. Yeah. He basically had six months right. off. Where I understand he played a few turns. He played if a couple I, of the If hard... I'm Roger Federer, I don't pay, play anything more than the majors and maybe a warm, like whatever tournaments I feel you like would play I have the French, to though? warm up. Would you play no. the French? Well, would... I mean, no, he's probably he's not going to win. Why, why do it's you believe still, that? It's still a major. You don't think... When was the last? He's won it like well, once. Well, Nadal was sitting no, there. But, and, but, I mean, it's Nadal playing in the French Open. Nadal's going to play the French. Then he's, he's not going to win. getting older. I don't know. They're, they're fierce competitors. I mean, one of the observations sure. that, that people have made about okay. historical comparing, I mean, we, yeah. we all harken back to the 80s, 70s, and 80s when, when, when they were washed up at 29-30. Well, forget that. Borg didn't win another major after 26. McEnroe didn't win another one after 25. Right. So, and Connors at 29 or 30. But Connors the, 29 and, or 30. If you ask them to re- to recall what it was like back then, they they talk about their salaries and how much much less compensated they were than the players are today, and as a result, they had to play constantly and travel constantly just to earn a living. So, can you guys talk to our fans here and again? Not, this is, I mean that that is true, but that's not going to be what 
causes Federer to keep well, I want to ask you guys. Money. I want to ask you guys a question. But again, we're here on could, Wharton Moneyball. Uh, this is where uh, this is Eric Brad. Oh, no, here he this morning off. with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. If you want to join the conversation, talk to us about tennis or anything else. Please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So I want to ask you guys: Is this an example, maybe, where we're not using, if you'd like, the right X variable to measure the amount of mileage on the tires? So maybe age is no longer I'm not saying age isn't you know age is correlated with lots of things but maybe it's number of tournaments played in the last year maybe it's you know I don't know number of miles run maybe in the NBA it's not LeBron James is 33 it's LeBron James has played more minutes than Michael Jordan in his career and Michael Jordan was 40 when he stopped yeah. playing so is it possible that it's no that we're using the wrong proxy for mileage by using age and we should be using it's not even just number of tournaments played, but maybe there should be a recency effect. Maybe we should cut it off. How do you guys help our listeners think about, you know, when you're building a relationship and say it's an age curve? Maybe it's not an age curve. Maybe it's a minutes curve. Maybe it's a tournaments curve. Maybe it's a mileage curve. How do you think about that? Well, I mean, you you could. I mean, I guess you could collect a whole bunch of different variables and see which ones are most predictive of kind of drop-off inability. I would be hesitant to overtrain that model on people like Roger Federer or Nadal because it could just be... or I guess in football, Tom Brady, because it could just be that these athletes, these guys are exceptional, not just in terms of their peak performance, but in terms of their ability to adapt and to kind of manage themselves in a different way than they used to. Well, Shane, you bring up an interesting statistical question, which you remember we had to deal with in our Roger Clemens paper as well, which is if you're trying to understand somebody who's at the right tail of the distribution, how do you find What's other right people to put set? into a comparison yeah. set to yeah. say, you know, it's very oh, difficult. It's very, very difficult. I don't think Federer so has I, a comparison I, set. I actually would argue that the right way to, to, to just figure out that particular hypothesis is to use the literally hundreds, if not thousands, of players who play professional tennis. It's a very big sport, mostly attracts huge following out in Europe and Eastern Europe. And there's and they have fairly long careers. They don't you don't see them or know necessarily of them in the majors, but they have lots and lots of games. If you can get that record, you can probably track their their career okay. success. But let me let me let me play devil's advocate. Yeah. No, no, I mean they're play. not going to be very informative to so, somebody like well, Federer. Well, that's but, yeah. what I want to ask you, Adi. So we all agree with that conceptually, but suppose we all agree, and I'll you know I'll use the language of statistics. There's an interaction effect between the number of minutes... Let's take a simple model. There's an interaction effect between number of minutes played, which we can measure for everybody, and ability, but it's even... you know This is one of the things where maybe it's not a linear regression you should be using. You should be using a tree where if your ability is above a certain level, age has one effect, and if your age is below a certain... Sorry, if your ability is above a certain level, you have one effect. If your ability is below a certain level, you have a different effect, and you just don't have that many players that are at the yeah. point of the distribution. Why, why can't that be an argument against your approach? Well, yeah, I, mean, I mean, so... I, I, or, or looking at it a little way, if you were to take the wealth of people over the last century who played tennis and you were to build a model, I think you, that model would probably output that if you put what Federer's done in that model, the model would be like, well, no, that's impossible. That's impossible without what he just did. If the well, maybe, maybe Buddy did it. Let me just say the following. I think if the model was an appropriate model, and then we'll move topics here because tennis is a great topic. I like the Australian Open. But we have other things to we talk have about. Other, especially the Super Bowl, the Hall of Fame in baseball. But I think 
an appropriate model, and we've talked about this a lot of times, might have this as far out on the distribution, but if it didn't incorporate a large enough standard error, that would probably be the biggest mistake the model has, is mm-hmm. that we think we know so much about the age curve. As a matter of fact, we might yeah. say the same about Tom Brady. It's not possible that three years from now, Tom Brady could still be playing well. Well, it's of course it's possible. It just means that the right variables or the right unobserved heterogeneity, as we say, is not being taken into account into the model. It's not that our mean function yeah. is wrong. Listen, it's just that our standard error is too small. I, I, one of my one of my one of our listeners and friends uh, asked me um, uh, if I'm willing to to uh, admit that I was wrong on Tom Brady, and he reminded me of a forecast I made in the beginning of the season. Maybe it was the end of last season that this year we can expect much less from Tom Brady. <laughs> No, I mean, predicting a drop-off in a 40-year-old football player is... Was the, is, was the right bet, I think. But, sure, I mean, but, sure. You know, I, mean, and you'll, I mean, that's a great thing. That's a great thing about everybody betting on Tom Brady right now. Is it, 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 Of course you want to say he's going to fade, because you will eventually be well, right. Well, let's, let's make our transition a little bit to the Super Bowl. And, and by the way, uh, you know, people, as just related to this, but it's not the topic I mainly want to draw our attention to, is that, you know, you remember two weeks ago, people were pointing to the last six or seven games of the regular season for Brady. Remember yeah. you And you said, oh, he's got an interception per game, his completion percentage is down, yeah. etc. And by the way, it's not, except for maybe that fourth quarter against the Jaguars, which was, it was Tom Brady, um, it's not like Tom Brady has been brilliant in the playoffs. We may be seeing a lesser Tom Brady. All right, so he's down to three and a half sigma above everybody else. I mean, that's the thing. We could make the same parallel between that and Federer. He was much greater than everybody else, and now he's just much greater than everybody else. Let me ask a question about about quarterbacks. Um, How much of being a quarterback, if you had to broadly apportion it by percentage, it's a terrible thing and difficult to do, is really mental. I mean, I don't mean mental in the the in the grit sort of sense. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. in the in the wisdom sort of sense. Brady doesn't seem to make mental errors. He's so experienced, he's so talented, and he's so good. And and worse quarterbacks just seem to walk into traps. So, Agreed. And and those are and so those you can't. You, that's not going to decline with age. No. So how much of that is? Uh, how much of a football a football quarterbacks? Kind of ability is, is a I think I think it's quite. I think it's a substantial amount. I think especially the the style that Brady plays, right? Where he he doesn't like he's not particularly mobile, but he's got this in, incredible pocket presence where he seems to you know move a foot to the right or left and then and increase the time he needs to to throw the ball, and then he always finds a target. The and one- I mean, it's and I I agree a lot of those skills that he's using are kind of either mental or like, you know, they're just sort of eye-hand... They're not necessarily things that you would expect to degrade mm-hmm. as substantially by age. I would say one thing, and then like I do... Even though, even though, obviously, we have the Eagles in the Super Bowl, we're sitting here in beautiful Huntsman Hall in Philadelphia, we may pivot off the Super Bowl because we are our 9 o'clock guest, of course, or 8.30 and 9 o'clock guests will be both talking about football. But here's the way I would say it. It reminded me at the end of um, Peyton Manning's career. If you can't throw the ball down the field... At all. Yeah. Because your arm strength is gone. The defense can just sit in the passing lanes. It changes. Like So what Brady amazingly still has, although his his deep ball, I wouldn't be confident. If, if the game plan, if it's the Joe Flacco, Chuck, and Duck thing, yeah. That's yeah. Not, Brady's not that anymore. He doesn't have the 50-yard, I'm going to put it on a pinpoint arm strength. But, of course, the Patriots don't ask him to do that anymore. Right. His arm strength within 20 yards down the field is still truly amazing. And at the same age, Peyton Manning's arm was gone. He literally could not throw a tight, hard ball 20 yards out to the corner. And that changes the way defensively. And Brady, you still have, at least in the first 20 yards, 
you still have to cover the whole field. You have to cover the whole field. So I think mentally you're right. Brady doesn't make mistakes. Mistakes lose football games. And he's got enough left in the tank where people have to respect the throws he can make. Yeah. And that's the part that's amazing about him for a 40-year-old. So let's pivot. We've talked a little tennis. We've talked a little football. We're going to talk lots of football. Lots more football coming. Right? Lots more football coming. Let's pivot to something that's near and dear to all of our hearts, which is the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yes. Um, lots of things to talk about with the Baseball Hall of Fame. But just for our listeners here on Morton Moneyball, to remind everybody who got into the Hall of Fame, and then I want to talk to Adi about the process, because I know you study the process of the Hall of Fame. Um, Chipper Jones got into the Hall of Fame with, um, well, let's take them one by one. 97% of the ballot. Now, that surprised me, but I'll say why in a second. Did that surprise either of you that he got 97%, which, by the way, may have been in the top 10 of all time? It didn't surprise me because because Chipper Jones is exceptional. I don't think he's tier one, using your, your description. I don't think Thank you. Even he's, close. He's not, he's not but he's too high. he also has no detractors. And if you think about the way the vote goes, the vote is... Um, it's a, you only get ten players that you can you can you can select. You say on only the ballot. ten, it's, but that's... well, uh, well, there's a big argument about this. So there's lots of articles written that that's just not fair. You so it should be approval vote. Should be approval of anybody approval you vote want. And you ever want. And uh, actually, I I, I like the, I, I sort of like the process. It makes it kind of interesting. But the, the there's often a very big gap between certain players. So I, I'm, I know I'm jumping a little bit, but Edgar Martinez, who was not elected, correct, is a much more controversial player because his 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 career is uh, not. Is is more? I mean, he's a good, he's a great player. I think he will eventually be elected, and next year will be his last chance. But it's just not a, it's it's just not an obvious case in in the way that say Chip, Chipper Jones would be. And Chipper Jones didn't have any anyone who really was would be against him. He was a likable fella, you know. So besides even, in, even at Chase, Stadium. besides the likability, can I ask you a question? Do you? I, I think you would agree with this. You know, one of the things we study in marketing all the time is what we call context effects, which means we're not saying Chipper Jones is as great as, let's say, Willie Mays, who got 97% of the vote. But let's take a look. We're going to get to in a second. Who else did he come up against this year? Well, I mean, he may well have been the best player, maybe. Not ha, in my mind. Ha, not in ha. my mind. He may well have been the best player. I don't mean Bonds and Clemens. I'm well, re- the process is a joke. Well, we know that. The process we, we, we've is this. a joke. Yes. Because... The probably the second best baseball player to ever play, maybe third best baseball player to ever play the Mike game, Messina? is not elected. <laughs> I'm talking about Kurt Schilling, obviously. No, obviously. I'm talking about Barry Bonds. No, right. But this is uh, we've 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 rehashed. It's a joke. It, I mean, right? But I mean, half we can't the people talk about for him 100 percent right, every that's time. Right, and the other that's half right. are never going to elect vote for him. Yeah, and the fact that the half are never going to vote for him is a joke. I mean, the whole process obviously is not designed to elect the best baseball players to have ever played the game. It's like, you know, well, it is, it most, does. I mean, most but let's, popular let's baseball go back. players to this ever This is why Chipper game. got 97%. Yeah. yeah. This, is, this is the Fan other favorite. side of it. But you also agree, this, you also agree part of it, well, first of all, so, I, since, so we're a business show as well. What Shane is also asking is, what question in some sense are, this is, we ask this in surveys all the time, because let's be clear, yeah. the, the ballot is a survey. It's a survey. It's not. It's not like you're going out to a store and buying something. It's yeah. a survey. 
what question is the respondent answering? Who, and what, so, and which guy? And the the, que- the answer is which guy do I like? Which guys do I like the most? Who also happen to be good at baseball? It's right. not which guys were the best at baseball, right? So no, obviously, no, no, they, because they take the word fame and they interpret it in a, in a different way than than Shane does. And every every writer, and it's a baseball writer who is allowed yeah. to vote, has a slightly different skew on that. And so someone like Chipper Jones, who's met, meets the standard for being in the Hall of Fame on quality wise, and there's no one yeah. really who debates that he's not top number one tier. But he's not below the line by any measure. The only, the only he was a very likable guy, and and mm. uh, and that's why he doesn't have detractors. The only concern I have about Chipper Jones, by the way, I do believe Chipper Jones is a Hall of Famer. Not, sure, not I, a ninety-seven percent number. But I, I, mean, I just, you know, I guess you, I push back only because we're arguing like whether you know between like did the fifty-first best baseball player have a better smile than the forty-eighth best baseball player, right? And dude, I like him more when the third best baseball player is not in. But but let me just say the following, and I agree. With, the one thing you would agree with is. Barry Chipper Jones. Let me say the good news at least. Chipper Jones isn't stopping Barry Bonds from not getting no, the no, Hall of Fame. No, no, it's not. I mean, it's not a one a year Chip- in, and no. like it's not a either or. It's not a fix some vote. It's it's just not, it's I, I, think Messina. Sy- I, I think the system is broken to such an extent that arguing over there, like you know, we'll try, I mean, it's I guess not, it's an system. interesting psychological exercise to try and predict why people how people are going to vote. But so why do you say? By the way, before we get to Vlad Guerrero, who I want to get to next. Why do you say that Bonds is blocking Messina? Because there's only 10 votes, and Bonds and Clemens take up two every year from about 50 to 60% of the ballots. And there's, but there's 10 votes, not five. There, there are 10 votes, but there's a huge diversity. There's a lot of very talented ballplayers out there, and not everyone votes for Messina. It's about, he's running around 70, 70, just under 75%. He's at 63.5 this last 63, year. That, so, so, uh, what and he's you got act, four more years. He's got four more years. So he's been creeping up. His, and his Bonds public, only has like another... Bonds has Bonds and Clements have three more years each. Okay, so Messina's only so got like one take a look, without them. You take a look. The, the people who don't vote for Messina essentially vote for him because they don't vote for him. Well, there are two reasons why you don't think he deserves it, obviously. And the but I think I believe the more common reason is that just he doesn't rank among the people who don't vote for him in the top ten. Right, and well, one of the reasons why he doesn't rank in the top ten is though two. Are Clemens and Bonds taking up two spots? Then there's an, always a couple of new people who are slam dunks. They vote for them, one could, and then there's uh, five or six that you're kind of arguing about every year. And and for some people, Messina doesn't make. Could that one count argue? I mean, I actually think Messina belongs in the Hall of Fame, but like, couldn't one count argue that like, well, what are the fifty um, percent that aren't voting for Bonds and Clemens are disproportionately voting for Messina because they got to fill. They want to fill. You know, he's he's like a, a non-controversial well, the, steroid pick, a non-steroid pick. Um, so good point. Y- that, but the thing you know, so I mean, I mean, this counterfactual where Bonds and Clemens don't exist. How do we know that those people are all voting still for Messina? We have, to, we have to look at it as 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 as, uh, as spots on a ballot. So the question is, would someone vote for ten? If they can, if they have ten slots, or would they vote for eight? I mean, how many people vote? It turns out most people vote for mas- basically for the full ballot. They yeah. do. The average is a little less, obviously, because there are some people who vote for very few. But most, most, the median number is a full ballot. Now, before we get to Vlad Guerrero, I want to ask one other question, Adi. I know you study this because of like the votes that are kind of announced before it's announced. Could you talk about 
the I don't want to say the surprise, but Edgar Martinez just missed out at seventy point four percent. He uh, it takes seventy five percent for our listeners to make the Hall of Fame. Could you tell me the pre analysis and then the yeah. kind of the mathematics you did to I say would, why was it tracking, was surprising? I was tracking Martinez almost to the very so can end. Can you tell our listeners you've spoke about this before? We've been around though for yeah. three plus years. Can you tell what you mean by tracking and therefore and then the math that would say right. wow it, that was a little surprising? It's actually very it's 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 somewhat interesting. So there's a there's a, a guy named Ryan Thibodeau who tracks every public ballot. So a voter who, a baseball writer who has a, a who releases a ballot to the public, he just they just announce it on Twitter or wherever they do. He, Ryan, he calculates it, puts it in a database. So as the, um, the, the announcement comes, about two-thirds of the ballots get announced ahead of time. And you can track how any candidate is doing along the way. And Martinez was tracking right around 80 percent, almost the whole way through. And if he's at 80 percent, he needs 75 percent. Based on the proportion, uh, so you can forecast what the public ballots will be pretty let well. Me just, let me just, just for our listeners out there, let me just tell you, this is the kind of math I do all the time. If for two-thirds of the ballot, you're 5% above the cut line, that means for the remaining one-thirds of the ballot, you could be a roughly 10% below the cut line and still actually That's get right. elected. So he could have been, as long as he was 65% on the remaining one-third... He would have a, he would have made the Hall of Fame. So right. I just want to make sure that's, that's the exactly inverse the, math. That's the that inverse you're math, doing. and and essentially that's a fifteen point gap. He was running around Correct. eighty, and he had to he had to be better better than sixty five on the remaining. Now what we have is historical years. He's been on the ballot for many years, and he typically runs between ten and fifteen points behind on the the private ballots, what we call the private ballots. So I was making a forecast, saying he's right at the border, and he actually looked like he was going to clear it, maybe by a point or two. And so that's he what he was looking like. It then, a of fact, he actually missed it by a lot. By a lot. A lot of people say he was close. And in your math, he's like, it, it wow. Was, it was actually quite surprising to me. The, the, the private ballots just were way lower than like they, 50% they were about 50 percent, way lower than they historically had been. And I've, I was surprised by that. So can you talk about a like so the way I'm thinking this as a statistician is the general principle that arrival time may not be independent of one's vote. Well, there is an issue with that. I mean, so the, the voters who voted earlier are different from the voters who voted well, that's later. That's what I'm asking you. But about. I don't think we saw that. The voters who don't release their ballots at all are very different from those who do. And that's where the big difference is. There isn't really an order effect for, for I Edgar. See. But what I think was interesting, and this gets to the, the, con- the, the conversation we we're having a minute ago, why was Edgar Martinez so much lower on the private ballots than he'd been in the past? And oh, I so think he was answer, even lower than yes, in the past. Yes, he was. So the answer, I believe the answer is, if Martinez were elected, it would have been a, a Hall of Fame class of five. And just for history's I'm sake. Gonna, can I take a guess? Take a guess. How often does I that happen? I know four was extremely rare, which is what we got this year. I mean, I know the original, like, Babe Ruth Hall of Fame class was six, five or five. six. Okay, it was five. five or six, and, you know. Ty well, Cobb did not then, make it. Ty Cobb back wasn't. then, they had to fill it up kind of quickly, so it's like every teammate that ever played with Babe Ruth went in, so. No, 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 it didn't. no. That was no. Not the case. It was like Grover Cleveland Alexander, was Cy no, uh, Young, Babe Ruth. It was, it was only Babe Ruth was the only uh, Yankee. It was the only Yankee. So has there ever been, besides that class? No. There had never been besides that class. So now that, that leads you, and we actually discussed with some of my students. So we were trying to discuss Martinez, and he looks like he's kind of close. He looks like he, but he should be comfortably making it. But then we asked the question, how, how common is it to get five? And the answer is, other than the first class, which is special, never. 
And that throws in a, like a Bayesian wrench into this whole calculation, because this would be something unbelievably remarkable. I mean, really, really remarkable if they if five were me, elected. But, and so we actually pulled back my forecast, and I said I didn't think it was going to make it. But let me ask you guys again. This is I've got to This is Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM Radio Business One Eleven, powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Brado, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, uh, Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics, and Adi Weiner, Professor of Statistics. And if you want to join the conversation, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine. Four two seventy eight sixty six. So let me tell you the the problem I'm having with what you just said, Adi. Not that I disagree that you shouldn't pull it back, but it would imply that each individual voter, in somehow some way, either has awareness or cares about that fact, yeah. or has some way to adjust their the voting. The guys were actually so, watching the public yeah, so, ones and somehow no, changed no, their actually, votes. What would no? I'm saying. Let's imagine I'm a voter and I you put me in a bubble. And I don't listen to anybody else. I don't care about anybody else. I'm going to make my vote. Then your fact that there's never been five people shouldn't have an impact because I'm not taking that into account, nor is the collective group. It's Everyone's such a weird just voting. thing to take into account. No, you're not. Too. You're not. It has this to do with space on the ballot. So that's, that's, jacked up, man. That's oh, why. So it's just, I think it has to do with space on 10. the ballot. Right. There's only 10. And so if five are going to go in, more than 75% of the ballots have to have five of the same candidates. And that just is a lot and it, it's a huge concentration and the fact was is it really only you know Vlad wasn't elected last year um, there were really two new guys who were admitted pretty easily this year I'm shocked that Jim Tomei by the way by was what, made in it in so easily actually made it in so, I mean 90% I basically I actually think it has to do with his 600 home runs which is such a rare feat and it's it just an impresses extraordinarily rare feat but like see let me just say by the Likeable way likable guy no, nah, but sort of. But let me just say, by the way, <laughs> if the reason that you're look, there's been more. No one on this show. We're not blood testers. We're not accusing anybody of anything. But there was as much discussion of Jim Tomey being in the PED era as there was of Bonds or Clemens or any of these people. So I have to admit, from just a person, it seems a little surprising, doesn't it? Well, it seems surprising to me that there would be this gap. And to me, if Jim Tomey's in the Hall of Fame. How's Barry Bonds not in the Hall of Fame? It's I, and ridiculous. You know, for, and you know, for years I've it's been against ridiculous. Bonds and Clemens being in the Hall of Fame. But if you're going to start putting more people from this era in, maybe how, you should put the third best player in Hall of Baseball. Maybe, maybe uh, no should. arguments maybe. for me. I don't maybe. have any. So issue. let's go to the last one. Let's go to the last one. Our last few minutes of this segment. Trevor Hoffman. Now he's only Very the sixth closer, sixth closer of all time to be in the Hall of Fame. Um, what do you guys think about Trevor Hoffman being in the Hall of Fame? By the way, just so you know, you could it depends on what metric you use. You could argue second or third best closer of all time until Rivera broke his record. Trevor Hoffman has over 600 saves, if that's a magic number. Um, second most all time. I think we'd all agree there was a time he was the best closer, certainly in the National League. I mean, he was the, one of the best players in baseball at his position for an extended period of time. Sure. How many How many of the closers that have been elected are modern closer, ninth inning only closers. Like Gossage was elected, but he was he was to pitch in the seventh inning. Yeah, her so very, same thing. very no, different. Lee, Lee Smith would be one of those, but he was another one of those guys. So that what makes was, I think Trevor Hoffman Point Wilhelm was another one right, of those. I think Tro, 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 I think Trevor Hoffman. Trevor Hoffman is the first closer in the modern form. Yeah. And that's controversial because people think that is an that is a a, a position that you just you, you come in the ninth inning with a lead, almost always you get you went you get the save, and it's just not considered a particularly 
Exciting? Exciting or no, he's, talented he's, position. He's but he's, of course, the, the least best. exciting baseball no, player to make ask, the Hall no. of Fame in some time, in my opinion. I, I, don't, I mean, I'm, maybe if I was a fan of San Diego, I'd feel otherwise. But I mean, like, yeah. let can me we guys, really drum up much energy for Trevor Hoffman here? The word Hoffman is milk here? toast. Well, let yeah. me ask you guys one last question then before we take our break and move on to the third quarters of our, the last three quarters of our show. Which position are you more excited about putting someone in the Hall of Fame for? Uh, let's call it the modern ninth inning closer or a DH. Like who would? Let's imagine DH. I would be too DH. Yeah, I have just the opposite reaction. Really, I really do. I just feel that so many baseball games are lost at the end of the game by you know bad. You know, you see some. You know, we got the luxury of Mariano Rivera for whatever it was, fifteen seasons, and you know the Yankees won so many more games pennants championships because of that i would rather have the best closer in baseball than the best dh in baseball i'm just giving you my opinion yeah no i i, I actually th- i don't think i would actually agree with that even though i disagree on 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 dh right. being more exciting let me ask but you only because i think that the talent level that consists that reliability of closer is like one or two base closers i'm going to just ask you a slight turnaround would you prefer the best dh and the third or fourth best closer or the other way around. And I would argue you would prefer the best DH and the second or third best closer. you get more value out of that. Maybe mm-hmm. so. We'd have to, well, anyway, we have three more quarters here on Morton Moneyball. What we're really fortunate about after the break, we're going to be speaking. Adi, you and I are getting all pumped up about this. Mm-hmm. We're going to be speaking with Gil Alexander, who's live from Las Vegas, to talk to us about Super Bowl betting. I'm sure all of our listeners on Morton Moneyball want to join us. So please join us again right after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. Thanks to our sound engineer and associate producer, Danielle Bruno, for bringing us back with some morning music that gets us excited about the Super Bowl and excited about the week. Thank you, uh, Danielle. So this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner from the statistics department. So guys, we're extraordinarily lucky this morning. We not only have a guest who generously got up at 5.30 a.m. live from Las Vegas, but someone who's going to talk to us about part of the statistics area that we talk about quite a bit here, which is betting. Um, So we're lucky to have Gil Alexander. Uh, Gil's a sports betting expert and host of a show, A Numbers Game, on SiriusXM's Vegas Sports and Information Network, Channel 204, actually a channel I listen to quite often. And on on Sunday for the Super Bowl, uh, on that channel, he's going to have... 32 special in-game wagers. So actually, as the game is going on, Gil's going to be talking about in-game wagers, and it's the only live broadcast that's going to take viewers and listeners on a fast-paced, non-stop ride through the world of in-game wagering. So, Gil, uh, this is Eric Bradlow with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. I appreciate you all having me on the show. Uh, first question, does this get me admission to Wharton Business School? That's the first thing I want to know. That and an application. Yeah, that and, well, <laughs> put it this way. Well, the fee, the application <laughs> fee is actually technically the important part. Well, Gil, let me just say the following. Um, we'd be thrilled the next time you're here. Well, I can say is it'll get you admittance to a speaking engagement at the Wharton School. And so the next time you're here, by the way, Mike, we'll talk about this in a little bit. My colleague, Adi, Adi Weiner, runs a summer program for high school students called Wharton Moneyball. Uh, I, trust me, high school school students would love to have you come in and there's lots of sports and statistics groups we'd love to have you speak in front of so next time you're in philadelphia please contact us very kind of you. that Appreciate would be generous so having me on that would be great so first could you just tell us about your background you know lots of our listeners you know it's hard to disentangle in today's world a love of statistics and sports with gambling so tell us about your background and how this became kind of a full-time profession for you 
Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's perhaps not the sexiest thing in the world. I was, like many children, uh, obsessed with uh, baseball cards. Uh, spent many an hour, uh, many, many a solitary hour, uh, entertained by the back of colored cardboard with statistics. And even in my sort of eight-year-old brain knew that uh, the statistics on the back of a baseball card weren't telling the full story. I just didn't know how to articulate it. And uh, when I read uh, Moneyball as an adult uh, in 2003, Michael Lewis's great book about the inefficiencies in the baseball player personnel market, uh, I sort of related to, I don't know if you've ever heard the legend of how Bob Johnson started the Black Entertainment Television Network. But the legend has it that he was in the back of a cab in New York City, and there was an elderly cab driver who learned that he was a young guy in television and said, you know, you guys should do shows about elderly people, and you could do a show about this and a show about that. And in Bob Johnson's mind, he simply replaced the word elderly with African-American, and thus, ergo, BET was born. When, when I read Moneyball, uh, instead of thinking about it in the terms of that book and the context of inefficiencies in the player uh, personnel market in baseball, I thought the whole time, betting on sports. These were the same principles one could apply to betting on sports. So instead of relying on the conventional stats that everybody else was relying on, Perhaps if I had better numbers, more true to skill sets of pitchers, specifically in baseball and then, and then batters thereafter, I would be able to beat the market. Now, that's a very antiquated notion because now everybody's ahead of that curve. But back then, that was a pretty innovative thought. So, Gil, could you tell us here, so we always talk about there's a couple ways if one was trying to bet on sports, and you've just brought this up, that people could, in theory, have an advantage. One is, you know, the wisdom of the crowds is just different than the statistical model. That's one way to do it. You've also mentioned, I got data you don't that you don't have. That's another way. Third could be, you have a better widget. You have a better statistical model than other people. As someone that's, as a sports better, given what you just said, if one wanted to get into this area, is it, I'm going to build a better statistical modeling hammer? Is it, I'm going to get better data? Or, I'm just an extraordinarily patient person, and I'm going to wait for the wisdom of the crowd market efficiency to be off. How do you think about it? God, it's a, that's, such a, it, that's such a complex answer because I think it depends on the sport. I think it depends on your makeup as a human being. So if we're talking about football and we're here in Super Bowl week, and we'll obviously get to the, the Super Bowl props, but I think the NFL is a great example of there's so much dumb money in the market. Everybody, wherever you are, has an opinion about the NFL. It is, it is the king of all sports, and I think you do best betting football – not so much with a statistical model, although that certainly should be the basis for anything, but really you're playing against the crowd. Recency, the recency effect is such an overriding element to being successful uh, in betting the National Football League. I think baseball is different. Uh, baseball really is, for me, about having a better statistical model than someone else, uh, than the next person, and, and certainly better than the books themselves. I think so. I think it's a different answer for every sport, and I think you have to have the humility also. And this is probably the biggest thing I would for anybody who's considering sports betting: the humility to know that your way is never going to be the only way, and to learn from others that if there's a spectrum of the most statistical approach on one on one side, and the most smoke and mirror, let's call it, person on the far end of that spectrum that oftentimes the answer, the best answer lies somewhere in the middle of that. And you have to sort of have the temperament to uh, be able to overcome the, the losing stretches uh, as well. And 
there will be losing stretches, believe me. So I, my two co-hosts are raising their hands to ask questions, but I have one last question for you. It actually relates to something my colleague Adi Weiner and I, who's a co-host, is going to ask a question in a second I were just talking about. How do you beat the VIG? Like, we're looking at all of these prop bets, and before you get into the details of them, which we want to get to in a second, like, we're seeing, like, you know, plus 140, minus 170. We're seeing these massive spreads. So even if I'm patient and I've, I, I can deal with the losses and I've got a good statistical model, like, I've got to be so much better than the betting odds differential I'm given. So how do you think about just the VIG and the way to, you know, can I really win in the long run? Yeah, I mean, you, you've hit on what. Listen, the reason they keep building sports books and the reason they kill, they keep building casinos is because the edge is with the house, right? Obviously, in in, uh, in sports that are eleven ten vig, you lay minus one uh, ten to win a hundred. That is minus one ten, as we call it in our parlance. Uh, that's the edge that the books have, and in order to be a winning sports better over the long haul, strictly betting. Uh, eleven ten sports like that, you've got to hit fifty two point four percent of your wagers. Now, to, to the average listener, they're like fifty two point four percent. Looks like nothing, that. huh? Yeah. Oh, good luck. Uh, it, it is a it is a really really tough proposition over the over the long haul, and uh, there is a handful of betters that that are able to defeat that. Uh, those are the best in the business. Most people cannot. As far as the props that uh, I think you were just referring to, which has the wider uh, straddles that you were talking about. This week, there is actually a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of, you know, one of the big things is is in, a, in an NFL week, the market has a full week to calibrate the line. It is an extremely efficient uh, market. When it comes to prop creation, uh, like we have seen this past week, books are sort of fighting over themselves to get them out early, to be the first to get them out. There's a big frenzy of, of the release this past Thursday. And I will tell you that for those of us who bet very seriously, it is one of the great betting days of the year because they do put up bad numbers. Ah. They are human beings, after all. And there is not some sophisticated algorithm uh, that goes into it, and that might surprise them. So, so just for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, and again, we're talking to Gil Alexander, host of a numbers game on Sirius XM Radio, uh, channel, one, channel 204. So, Gil, just for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, just to be clear, what you're referring to is, for let's say the over-under for who's going to win the game and by how much. There's an initial line put out, which is based on statistical models. The wisdom of the crowds may adjust it by, in this case, a point, a point and a half. Those are kind of efficient markets because there are you know, a lot of people weighing in on these markets. But you're referring to the initial numbers put out on like, you know, is the last score going to be a touchdown? What's the chances there's going to be a safety in the game? Is the first play going to be a sack? That these numbers are put out basically on human nature and such speculation that there's opportunities there. Which is interesting about it, this is Adi Weiner, uh, that those numbers are also are also the most wild, but they're also the ones that are covered with the biggest spreads because they they don't really know, so they they book into it or they build into it all this extra straddle space. So that means that it's it's kind of you're you're kind of a, a one step down before you start, but obviously there's enough of them and you can find it. How do you do that? You do that with statistics or do you do that with just experience? Uh, both. Uh, I think it depends on the prop. So, by the way, that was, and that was a great description of the difference between uh, the efficient market of a game line versus that of these props that, that was given there. And I, and I think, let's take an example of, of a prop this week. 
let's take some of the more template props that exist every year prior to Hold on a second. I'm getting my pen to write this down, and I assume you're giving me the ones, Gil, that I should be betting, right? Not that I would, of course, bet on the game. We're talking purely hypothetically here. I'll get I'll get to that secondarily. I'll, okay. I'll All right. First, first about just how the creation of, let's say, a generic, uh, a sort of template prop that exists every year. So player X on whichever team is playing in the Super Bowl will uh, will gain X amount of yards uh, over under, say, Legarrette Blunt gains uh, in this particular Super Bowl over under a certain amount of yards that's posted. That number often differs from book to book, and how each book creates those lines. Or let's say the initial folks who put him up is they certainly look at LeGarrette Blunt's game log for the season, and they come to some very uh, simplistic mathematical number as to, okay, well, this is what LeGarrette Blunt did over the course of 16 games this season, or however many games Blunt played in this year. And this is what uh, he averages out to, perhaps adjusted by opponent to some degree, although uh, even that might be a stretch in terms of how some books do it. Uh, But the best bettors have... Statistical models that can uh, that are that are able to really adjust for when the yards are gained. So, for instance, if Legarrette Blunt, and I'm just going to use him as an example, but if Player X, let's say more generically, gains yards uh, primarily in garbage time when the team tends to be up in the game, right? Uh, just as a means of running out the clock. I'm just giving a generic example, not just saying that yeah. this in this particular situation. The professional better is much better at assessing that, and therefore in a game uh, versus a Super Bowl caliber opponent has a much better read on actually what that player's total ought to be in a game like this as opposed to just doing some simple math on it. So I think on the template one, that's just a good sort of shortcut answer as to where the difference lies. As far as bets, you know, give you examples of bets that are exploitable. Let me, let me give you first the one that trips up betters the most the, the one prop that always flummoxes the average better, that uh, the average better is so tempted to bet every year, and it, it's just uh, a fool's errand. Uh, and that is a prop that says, will a team score three times in a row in the Super Bowl? And most people look at that prop, and they say to themselves, will a team score three times in a row? My goodness, they're playing a Super Bowl opponent. That's obviously very difficult to do. And when it says, no, oh, my God, it's at plus money. Uh, generous plus money. Wow, I'll obviously uh, bet on the no there, especially when you're giving me a lot of bang for my buck. When in fact, it happens all the time. It's a, uh, a, a really uh, cagey prop that bookmakers put up, put up. And if they ask, if you ask them which is the one that trips up betters the most, that tends to be it. This year, I will tell you the ones that were supremely bettable, but folks like myself have moved these lines. And even in, in this case, before I could even get to them, just to give you an idea of the sense of bad numbers. Yeah, please do. Uh, uh, will there be a touchback to start the game? Will the opening kickoff be a touchback? And this was opened at William Hill, one of the uh, big uh, sports book companies here in town. Can you tell us what the odds? Yeah, tell us what the betting yeah. odds were for that. The opening odds, or the uh, the no, was at plus one seventy can't remember what the yes was, but it was in, in heavy minus numbers. But the no on will the opening kickoff be a touchback was yet was no at plus 170. I think yes was minus two something. And the average person will look at that and be like, oh, there's always touchbacks. No at plus 170. I'll, I'll you know, that, that's interesting. Or, or, or they would play the yes because they always say, yes, there's a lot of touchbacks. But no is at plus 170 is a 
tremendously bad number because, for those who follow these teams closely, Bill Belichick, first of all, both teams like to defer kickoffs. But when Bill Belichick and the Patriots kick off, they are the one team in the league that you can count on not kicking a touchback. They love the mortar kick, the kick inside the 10 around the five-yard line, where they know from analytical study that that's the best way to pin the opponent back in terms of field position. So actually, depending on the opening coin flip and who, uh, coin flip and who ends up kicking off, instead of plus 170 on the no, that should have been much closer to a coin flip. So when that number, for instance, came out... Just, Gil, let me just interrupt for just one second, yeah. just to do the math for our listeners here. You're saying, let's say there's a 50-50 chance that the Patriots kick off first, and if mm-hmm. the Patriots kick off, it's not one, but it's almost near one, that it's not going to be a touchback. Therefore, it's at worst... Well, 50-50 is what he's saying. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. I'm, I'm saying it's 50% that the Eagles kick off... Sorry, that the Patriots kick off, and conditional on them kicking off, it's almost certain that it's not going to be a touchback, and therefore there's almost 50% odds right there of their being and you're saying it should be in a lot closer to 50 50 than it was correct well yeah, so great. one thing the basic math we should learn is when he says 170 it's 170 divided by 270 to get the probability right exactly and so that's right so the number is way off it's the about 63 percent right, right it's way way off the 50 percent mark so this wasn't an opportunity gill that you were able to get in on no because there are so many smart people here betting and that's the one. That's the other thing that people should know about sports betters, right? Is that you know they have this this stereotype of a, of a degenerate uh, subset of society. And, and by the way, there are those. Let's not let's not act like that. That they're not uh, there. Character. You can't make money. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But uh, you know, I would say the top two percent of professional sports betters. I would throw them up against the top two percent of any profession anywhere. It's just that they choose to sort of live their life in a sort of a social way with nobody telling them what to do and, and they're smart people and they grab that quickly they recognize the uh the error and they'll grab it and there's all kinds of examples of that i'll give just one other Garrett blunt to score a touchdown was opened at the south point uh, hotel casino at plus 425 you know that's a plus 200 kind of thing uh by the numbers ought to be so they were about two two dollars <laughs> off that and uh, that's just not the kind of thing you'll see uh, on a weekly basis, say, on a regular spread of a National Football League game. So it's a fascinating week. Put it this way. If you had told me right now I could bet $100 to win 425 with LeGarrette Blunt scoring a touchdown, I think I would take that bet. Th- that's amazing. Yeah. So they're, they're, why would people think that it's so unlikely that he would get a touchdown? Well, that's the thing. So that's the main point of all this is that we have actual human beings behind the desk who, like anyone, can actually make errors. And they do. Listen, they're putting out, here's the, here's the simple truth of it. They're making 400 or so props. Proposition wagers for the Super Bowl became popular way back in 1985 is the origin. You may recall when William Refrigerator Perry uh, was playing for the Chicago Bears, and Mike Ditka loved in the 1985 season to put the fridge in the backfield and he would block for Walter Payton more often than not. But they decided here in Vegas, Jimmy Vaccaro uh, was one of the folks who did that, uh, to say, you know, to put up a proposition wager that said, will William the Refrigerator Perry score a touchdown in Super Bowl, I believe it was Super Bowl twenty that year in 1985. Uh, don't hold me to that. But Fridge actually scored, and those odds opened at 40-1. to 1. I think they closed in single digits. 
and the, and thus proposition wagers were born because the publicity they got Vegas from that one prop exceeded all the other press on the game itself that they got. And so if the industry was born, and now you've got every shop putting out about 400 of these. And when you put out 400 of anything, they're going to make a mistake here and there. But they probably detect the errors pretty quickly because, the, because they start seeing the, the sharp money coming in on one side overwhelmingly, and they realize, oh, boy, we, we screwed yeah. this up, and it starts to move. So is that, that's what happens? Cause you, you, that's, what, that's exactly what happens, yeah. although in, in terms of props as opposed to a game, like we just had the first multi-million dollar bet uh, that took place here in Vegas at MGM uh, this past Wednesday on the Eagles money line. Right. We've and seen, they, obviously, given we're sitting here in Philadelphia, you know, we've heard the lore that this is better X, the same better that won all the money on the World Series. Um, yes. At least that's the lore that's it's out in the print. But, Gil, we only have a minute or two left, so I wanted to ask you, we've got to ask you, what are your thoughts about the game? How do you see the game? We've been talking about betting. We've been talking about the inequities in the lines, which are fantastic. In the, you know, in the minute we have left, tell us who you think is going to win the game, how it's going to play out. Well, you may not like this in Philly, but I do think Rob Gronkowski is the difference. I think the Eagles' defense, which has been exceptional in so many ways, their one sort of Achilles heel is covering the opposing tight end. I think Gronkowski has a big game. Their other sort of weakness might be the, uh, covering the opposing team's slot receiver. That's where Danny Amendola comes in. I am betting the Patriots on the money line. That is to win the game outright, not against the spread, because, and I'll wrap it up with this, the Super Bowl is always betting away where the public, when they take the dog, instead of taking the points, they always bet the money line. And so it creates a lot of value on the favorite on the money line, and that's who I'm betting the Patriots to win it on the money line. Wow. Gil, well, first of all, Thank you so much for getting up so early. We've been talking to Gil Alexander, host of a numbers game. Uh, Gil is uh, on SiriusXM Vegas Sports Information Network channel, uh, channel 204. So, Gil, thank you for joining us this morning on Wharton Moneyball. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. So, guys, in the last few seconds, just to wrap up Gil's thoughts, it's really interesting of, in some sense, how much inefficiency there is in the market and in some sense there are opportunities but as you just very pointed early out, Adi, on very like. early very on early, yeah. but but he, at the very last point that he made at the end is there's there's the public has a gigantic error and they love the they actually love the dog and they take the money line and that always gives a prop uh, ability and it actually sits right around that that one to two percent line you know what's fascinating is that Gil's thinking. You know, I have not bet on the game hypothetically, of course. But if I was hypothetically going to bet on the game, I have to admit I was going to bet the dog in the money line. I, I mean, is. I was going to follow the classic psychology. Like you know, if the Eagles are going to play, they're not losing by three. They're going to win the game. Well, there's a lot of history to suggest, by the way, that the lots of opponents of the Patriots lose the Super Bowl by the same exact spread that we have now. So this has been the first one half hour on Morton Moneyball. Uh, we have a great second half hour with two guests. So please join us after the break. We're going to talk more sports, statistics, and business. It's been a great first half. Join us after the break. You're listening to Morton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. We just got finished with the first half of our show and a great interview with Gil Alexander, host of A Numbers Game on Sirius XM Radio uh, 204. Told us about a lot of interesting prop bets and his prediction for the game. 
But now we're actually, our next guest we know is a listener of Wharton Moneyball because he's called in before to our show. Uh, we're very fortunate to have someone who actually played in a Super Bowl so he can give us the player's perspective and someone who's also doing work in analytics now. So we're honored to have Todd Stusey. Uh Todd is a former guard and tackle for a number of great teams in the Vikings, the Panthers, my Buccaneers, and the Rams. Uh, for those of our listeners that don't know, he was drafted 19th overall in the 1994 NFL Draft a two-time pro bowler. He's also the founder, and we'll get into this too, and co-founder of Potentia Metrics and is the president of Potentia Pro. So, Todd, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with, this morning with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Thanks, guys. appreciate having me on. Well, Todd, first of all, it's great to talk to you. Um, we do want to talk about your work with uh, Potentia Metrics and Potentia Pro, but really, you know, given it's Super Bowl week and we're sitting here in Philadelphia with the Eagles being our home team, just could you take us a little bit into the player's perspective about the game? You know, people always say, just it's just remember it's a regular game. Well, it's not a regular game. Could you just talk us talk to us about the mindset of playing in the Super Bowl? Well, one, it seems like the uh, for the last I, I don't know how many years it's been two weeks in between the championship uh, week and the Super Bowl. I can't imagine. Uh, 20 years ago, I think it was only a week. Absolutely, and it was a week. That was, I mean, I can't imagine trying to um, put all that together. I mean, you have, it's a special event, obviously, and you want your immediate family there, and so there's all kinds of tickets arrangements and stuff. And if you were doing that while trying to prepare for the game, it's uh, uh, it, it's it's chaos in two weeks, and so one week would be even worse. But uh, a lot of it in the first couple of days is kind of getting over the sugar high of the championship game and getting all those tickets, uh, things in order. And basically the coaches like, no, you got to get all that stuff done by Wednesday because Wednesday we're going back to work and getting ready for the, uh, for the opponent for us. Back in Super, Thir- Super Bowl 38, it was the uh, Patriots again. Um, and... Uh, I know some guys uh, don't mind seeing the Patriots every every week. Well, one of my no, co- no, that, that that can happen every year, as far as I'm concerned. Well, one of my but... co-hosts, Shane Jensen's a big Patriot, and fan. it does kind of happen but, most yeah, years. No, I know. But, but Todd, didn't... yeah, could you? I have. I, we have to ask you this question because we spent the first half hour of the show talking about age curves and age curves in sports and how you know whether it's Roger Federer or Serena Williams in tennis. Obviously, we have Tom Brady in football. But can you explain to us, you played in the Super Bowl, I guess it was in 2003 or 2004, 2003, and Tom Brady's still here. And can you just explain to us from a player's perspective, and also just the work that you've done in analytics, how rare is what we are seeing? And even if we hate the Patriots like I do growing yeah. up in New York, can you just tell us like how anomalous and how, you know, appreciate it while it's here? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the things I appreciate most about the Patriots. Uh, the ability to replicate success is one of the more most difficult things. Uh, messages from coaches get old. Um, as your body age ages, you have to redefine yourself. I mean, I was able to be, uh, when I came into the league, I was one of the faster, stronger guys out there. Your fast twitch muscle cells tend to deteriorate quicker than uh, slow twitch and so the speed things that you did successfully uh, with speed you had to begin to take better angles be more efficient in your movement Um, and there's certain things that I've my last year I I was 37 when I retired I I played three games over the age of 37 and 
um, it was in those last couple of years I took a lot out uh, I got a lot out of it because it really um, I was forced to kind of redefine myself and I I see Tom Brady doing that in a in subtle ways every couple of years because Tom Brady can't be successful the way Tom Brady was at 28. He's doing it differently, even if it's in subtle ways. To him, they're profound, and it really requires a commitment that uh, one of the reasons why a lot of people don't play past the age of 30, because at 30, that's when your body really starts to take a significant step down uh, as far as uh, just pure um, um, athletic ability. Todd, this is uh, Shane Jensen. So I I, I agree completely, and I think Part of the reason that Brady has been able to do what he does, not to take anything away from him, but he plays a particular position and, in fact, a particular style of that position that is maybe a little bit makes it easier to adapt because he's never been a person who, you know, whose kind of strengths rely on his athletic ability and stuff like that. It's, it's, do you think that he kind of obviously it's impressive what he's done, but you think he was more able to do that than most, you know, like wide receivers or running backs or anything like that? No, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, certainly there's certain positions that have a better um, ability to basically have longe- longevity. I mean, offensive line and quarterback is uh, we're not in the same uh, category by any means, but it's much more technique driven. Um, the ability to replicate a skill with a very low margin of error uh, versus pure talent driven if you think about it, in a lot of ways it's managing the downside risk versus really uh, capitalize on the upside i think one of the real true um outliers if you think about somebody like daryl green db is a extreme extremely uh talent driven performance driven uh position and the fact that daryl green for the washington redskins was able to play into his 40s is really quite amazing and he was still one of the fastest guys in the league at in his last year or two so uh yeah certainly position makes a big difference and the ability to um to uh redefine yourself and play more of a cerebral uh approach is uh certainly a, a big part of it as well so we're here on wharton moneyball talking to todd stucy former guard and tackle for the minnesota vikings two-time pro bowler played in super bowl 38 if you have a question for todd or want to join the conversation please call us at 1-844-WHARTON that's 1-844-942-7866 so todd if we could now start making the transition to talk about a, a passion of yours and something that's become a business of yours is the world of analytics so let me first as I'm making the transition, let me just start with your playing career. And as you said, you played a, a large number of years in the NFL. How did you see just the before we get into potentia metrics and potentia pro? Yeah. How did you see analytics change within the game of football in the you know 15 or so years that you played in the NFL? Yeah, no, it was only 14. I wish it was 15, but no. Uh, uh, 14 is uh, still, still great. incredibly and you, and let impressive. let me just say, as you know, we're huge fans, and you had a, a tremendous NFL career, and I know you're very proud of your NFL career. Yeah, um, no, it's, I mean, there was certainly, you start started to see um, early on, there was, I mean, early on in my career, a person like Brian Billick, he was my offensive coordinator when I was in Minnesota, Brian was a guy that was 
much more aware of the stats was, uh, I mean, I don't know if it was statistics driving decisions, but uh, uh, statistics that helped uh, kind of identify areas of improvement where we wind up going, uh, potentially being able to, he, he had basically a KPI dashboard or key uh, performance indicators looking at things like explosive plays, uh, play efficiency, uh, which I can get into greater detail, um, the, um, the uh, time of possession, and obviously turnovers. were Those were the things that he really monitored. He felt like if we won three of those four categories, that we were putting ourselves in a very good position to be successful. Um, but uh, there's the different technology that supports uh, – the, um, some of that is, was starting to come into the into the league. Systems like Exos and DB Sport, which are basically database uh, film management systems that coaches would use to meta tag um, specific uh, dimensional data on uh, plays, so that basically they be, could be easily queried. So you could wind up identifying, show me a cut up where all all plays third and ten between the 40-yard lines with this personnel in. But it required a coach to go in and manually enter all that information. And so hours and hours are spent. That's basically what 80% of the work that's done by quality control coaches, which are the lowest coaches on the totem pole, um, were doing that, spending long hours on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday night to get the film ready for coaches to begin to do their work on uh, preparing for the game plan. So just so all of our listeners are on Wharton Moneyball, Todd brought up the magic word that people use. Like, if you were Netflix today, this is what you do. Is The magic word is meta-tagging. And you also brought up, and this is where we'll transition to potentiometrics and stuff, you also mentioned that historically this was done by humans. You watch game film, you put a tag in the film, and now, as you said, a coach wants to say, show me all third and ten plays. Well, those have been meta-tagged by humans. So how But did, doing that it's got to be so constraining exhausting essentially to do that in a high throughput way across all the games. Yeah, and coaches in fact would only do it basically on the games that we played and they would be doing that almost in real time on the sidelines or usually an assistant coach is standing next to the offense coordinator writing down as much information as he can um, on our and then they wind up basically scouting the next opponent, they'll do between four and five games, uh, and that's it, because that's all there's time for. There's not that they wouldn't have value from having all of, let's say we're playing the Packers next week, all of the Packers games uh, analyzed. It's just four to five games is the structural limitation uh, based on using coaches for that meta tagging. So can you tell us how do you go from being, you know, and then we'll get into what you do at Potentia Metrics and Potentia Pro. Could you tell us how do you go from being uh, an NFL player to someone that says, you know, maybe there's a gap in the field about, you know, automatically looking at film and putting tags in them and using them analytically? Like, how do you develop your knowledge of analytics, your knowledge of technology? Because I'm sure many of our listeners are here saying, you know, wow, this is a man that went from one very successful career to a world that's seemingly very different. How did you do it? Yeah, I mean, um, so right after, uh, so 
kind of going into the last couple of years of my uh, NFL career, uh, there was an opportunity to uh, participate in these business certificate programs the NFL would sponsor with. Uh, at the time, there was four schools sponsoring. It was Kellogg, Wharton, uh, Harvard, and Stanford, so four slacker institutions. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, that's good company. I, I wound up going to three. I went to the Kellogg one, then to... Uh, Harvard and then Wharton um, uh, in 2008, and uh, Ken Shropshire was the uh, uh, sponsor of that uh, program. To, uh, or the he wound up managing yeah the faculty it. director of the program. Yeah, exactly. And so he um, um, that was a really neat opportunity with uh, with uh, Professor Shropshire, and uh, but it really kind of started to wet my whistle on. I knew that business uh, getting an MBA was was something that I really wanted to do as soon as I was, as I was done in the NFL. Um, I My first kind of pseudo job was actually working in the marketing department at the Rams right after I uh, finished in 2008. Um, and uh, the Rams were actually, they sponsored me uh, when I applied to business school. And I basically, I was, uh, the first um not that I didn't want to go to Kellogg, but it was Kellogg and Wharton was a close number two, and Kellogg had the earlier application, and I was like, I'm 40 years old, or almost 40 years old now. I'm the first one that accepts me. I'm going because I want to get my life started after football, and so anyways, um, it was while at business school at Kellogg that um, I um, was intending always to kind of go back to the NFL front office. But I had an opportunity to kind of have a almost a mentor uh, relationship with someone here in St. Louis that had a young uh, uh, healthcare analytics company, and kind of bouncing ideas that I had around football analytics and opportunities and the data um, wind up growing to where. Um, we kind of collaborated on a few early opportunities that he was working on with the medical school here at uh, uh, WashU, uh, Washington University, St. Louis. And um, it kind of just took off. And we, um, we actually, in 2014, did a tech transfer out of WashU with uh, um, having uh, exclusive uh, commercial rights to their clinical um, uh, registry for cancer data um, developed by uh, Dr. Jay Piccarello. Uh, it's the largest cancer registry with detailed comorbidity information in the world. Um, and um, we basically co-founded the company in, uh, at the end of 2014, and we've been uh, working with payers, providers, med tech companies, and uh, it's really become the central focus of the company. There was some work that we did in uh, um, some early opportunity work around football analytics, but it so far has yet to take off. So where do you see the area of healthcare analytics going? And do you see as you're developing and working in potentiometrics that, you know, maybe, you know, at some day you'll return to your love of football and all the advances you're making in healthcare analytics and metrics, you know, it's, as we always say, the, the numbers are the same, the language is just a little bit different. Do you ever see yourself pushing in the healthcare space and then transitioning back towards football? Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's always it remains a passion of mine. I kind of uh, I've talked about uh, for a while, kind of starting to blog. I was hoping to get 
started this year. It's probably going to be pushed back into next year in terms of kind of doing some data journalism and stuff. We'll see if there's something that um, grows uh, into the actual delivery but um, of uh, analytics in, in the NFL or in professional sports. But I certainly think there's an opportunity. There's a massive uh, opportunity in terms of the way that data is collected. The, I'm especially um, encouraged about the opportunity around the RFID data, um, just because that's a really rich data source. Unfortunately, teams, no one has access to it uh, in the full form. Um, and until that's so, it really, uh, well, I think that's something we're queuing up for a later stage. But basically, the just like you said, there's the math is very similar. The ability to understand, uh, to process information, to be able to make better decisions, to make uh, better allocation decisions as far as resources. Um, it's it's a very similar, the back end is very similar. It's the front end that uh, depending on who the user is, who the consumer of the information is. So this is Adi Weiner, and I, I enjoyed, well, I, maybe not enjoyed is the right observation, um, the point about the RFID chip and all that data being held privately. This is something that we as academics have been confronting. There's tremendously valuable data in all sports that, that is being proprietary held by the teams, and we just can't seem to break through that loggerhead and get access to it. Um, do you see that eventually trickling down to the public in, in all domains, or is it just going to sit there as privately for, forever? And or in your space <laughs> healthcare too. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, especially in healthcare, I mean, you have all kinds of regulations associated with uh, HIPAA, et cetera, that is really, uh, uh, but there is, uh, no, there's data out there. The uh, For all the knocks that the U.S. government uh, receives, and rightfully so in some cases, they actually do a very good job of providing information, de-identified versions, uh, large data sets of, um, um, and it doesn't answer all questions, but it can really answer some of the macro kind of trending indicators uh, uh, around healthcare spending, around outcomes, uh, clinical outcomes. Um, and so the, the there is information out there to, um, but it, in one of the real kind of key pieces that we focus on is around clinical registries. Uh, often people look at uh, electronic medical records as being the end-all, be-all, primarily because it, uh, it really, uh, a lot of hospital systems have spent a great deal amount of money putting, talking billions of dollars setting up these systems. But they're, uh, in their essence, they're, they're um, they were built to uh, off of claims data registries or claims data systems that, I mean, they were set up to basically support billing. And that's much different than setting up a system to support clinical decision-making. And um, a lot of times the way that the information is captured is not in the right granularity to really, uh, to potentially stake a life on it, to make a life and death decision on it. And so, um, we focus on the registry data that tends to be processed by registered nurses, et cetera, to really support the kind of clinical uh, decision-making that we're deeply involved in right now. As as you've pointed out, and actually many of our listeners on Morton Moneyball or many of our speakers, uh, guests on Morton Moneyball point out, at the end of the day, a lot of these problems are going to be solved through better data. 
and you know, uh, and so that it's interesting to hear. So, Todd, while yeah. we have you here, um, we actually have a caller who wants to talk to you a little bit about, as you know, maybe we'll transition with you to talk about the game coming up this week, and obviously in Philadelphia, it's obviously on our minds. Um, Paul from Chicago has a question for you. So, Paul, uh, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. You're on the line with myself, my co-host Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner, and more importantly, our guest this morning, Todd Stusey. Well, thank you very much for taking my phone call. This isn't the first time I've called in, but uh, uh, living in Chicago, just that one-hour time time zone change makes it much more difficult for me to get up and get on. But my question is, uh, since a lot of the, particularly the offensive linemen, were contemporaries of Mr. Stussy, um, who does he think should get in? Who do you think? Who does he think will get in? And it's, uh, on another aspect, uh, you know, you got Ray Lewis first year and Brian Erlacher. Uh, your comments on taking two of the same position on the first-year ballot. Well, Paul, first, thank you for your call. And, um, uh, Todd, just in case, I think I'll see if I get all these right for people, and you'll correct me, Todd, if I'm wrong. I think the following offensive linemen are uh, up for the Hall of Fame. Tony Baselli, Alan Fanica, Steve Hutchinson, Joe Jacoby. Um, let's see here. looks like Kevin Mawai. Kevin Mawai, and I think those are the offensive linemen. So um, back to Paul's question. Any of those striker fancy as guys you were like, while you were playing, you were like, wow, they were great, or any of the defensive guys that are going up now, you know, the Brian Urlachers of the world or Ray Lewis, uh, any thoughts on those players? Yeah, you know what, I, um, I'm obviously Ray Lewis. I mean, he's uh, – his bus has been probably made a couple of years ago. I think it's a, a slam dunk, no brainer. Um, but um, as far as offensive linemen, I really, uh, I think Kevin Mawai uh, really distinguished himself at that position of center over the years. Uh, um, Tony Baselli, uh, obviously uh, limited career as far as his longevity, but he was uh, clearly one of the, the top offensive uh, tackles in the league for five years, six years um, uh, before he really started succumbing to those injuries. Um, it's tough because his contemporary at that time was guys like, to me, Jonathan Ogden is the best offensive lineman of our era. Uh, it wasn't even uh, close. Uh, probably the next closest would be a guy I played against uh, next to for a long time, Randall McDaniel. Um, but tackles tend to kind of be on their own a little bit more and uh, uh, kind of stand out a little bit more. But um, I think that um, Joe Jacoby, uh, it's, I'd love to see someone like that get in. Um, Steve Hutchinson, I think, is certainly worthy. I don't know if he's this year or a couple years from now in Alan Panica. I think that there's some really strong candidates. I I don't think Tony's going to go in the first year. I just don't think that he's uh, – or no, actually, he's been up for a couple years. I, I think he'll eventually go, but I think he's going to be someone that spends uh, another year or two maybe kind of waiting. So – that's it's great to hear your uh, thoughts on all of these players. And so, let me ask you another question: How do you think about the game that's going to happen this Sunday? Obviously, the Eagles fans are happy to be back in the Super Bowl. Maverick, we even talked about this. If I've got this correct, um, you played in the Super Bowl against the Patriots, and I think the next year the Eagles played in the yeah. Super Bowl against the Patriots. So that was the two thousand three. So the Eagles haven't been back to the Super Bowl for you know fourteen years, and obviously we've never won a Super Bowl. How do you think and see this game playing out? And specifically, you know, um, can the Eagles play the strategy of you've got two big horses in LeGarrette Blunt and Jay Ajahi, use your offensive line, run the football? How do you see this game playing out? I think that uh, it, 
one and also just FYI, I was also I think the last time the Eagles were in the NFC Championship game prior to uh, last week was when I was with the Carolina Panthers in 2004. So um, there's all kinds of Philadelphia crossover. Um, but um, anyways, I didn't mean to bring up the sore subject. But no, uh, it's okay. As long as we win this Sunday, all the past yeah. will be forgiven. I, I think that certainly the. Um, the ability to maintain uh, reasonable down and distance, to basically to uh, have efficient play calling to where not getting a long down and down and distance, I think it's going to put um, Philadelphia in a good situation. It's difficult to do against uh, the Patriots. They're going to come out with a number of different fronts, and they're. I don't think they're overly concerned about. Uh, I think they'll blitz potentially to try to provide run support so i think it'll be kind of a low scoring first half the question is is what happens at the, as we all know the patriots are really good at kind of hitting the gas pedal right before halftime and going in and then coming out in the second half it winds up separating i mean i would love to have a really close game that uh, that uh it can't be obviously as close as last year's game but um i think the Patriots and their experience uh, wins out in these kinds of situations. I think uh, Belichick is just amazing when it comes to managing um, the uh, overall process at the Super Bowl. The experience matters, and um, I would love to see. Um, I'd love to see Wentz in that huddle for this weekend, obviously. I think that that would be a game-changer. But based on the personnel they have and uh, and the experience, it's probably the Patriots again. So let me ask you two related questions. How much role does the offensive line play in some sense, like when your starter Wentz goes down? I don't know if in your career any of the starting quarterbacks behind you went down. How much does the offensive line play a role saying you know, to Nick Foles, it's going to be okay? Like, don't worry about it. We're gonna we're we're okay here. How much role will the Eagles' offensive line, and they've got some stars on the offensive line, how will they play a role in some sense, protecting Nick Foles, calming, calming Nick Foles? Does the offensive line have a huge role in this game? Certainly, the uh, especially for an inexperienced quarterback, like you know what we got the protection. You just keep your eyes downfield, and we'll wind up making sure that. Um, that we we wind up covering you, and if there's a blind spot, we're going to make sure it's in the same spot. So you don't have to. We can manage the protection in a way that is able to kind of help out that young quarterback. Um, you asked about uh, experience with uh, having transition. We lost Brad Johnson in '98. Now we happen to have Randall Cunningham uh, on the on the bench. That worked out pretty well. Yes, it did uh, for the Vikings. Um, and um, when I was in Carolina, we had Jake DeLome come in in 2003 uh, to replace Rodney Pete. But uh, so we had some good. Uh, it's always good to have a good backup. And uh, um, Doug Peterson did a nice job uh, bringing in folds for that. But uh, I think. Um, you know what? Nick Folds is no longer the the backup. I mean, he's kind of gotten his sea legs underneath him. I think he's going to wind up doing a good job of managing that clock. The question, I mean, managing the uh, the ball. The question is, is what happens? Is, are the are the Patriots able to give a little wrinkle that winds up? 
resulting in a turnover. I don't think blitzing is going to be a huge factor. I think it'll be more blitz for run support than it will be for protect, uh, for uh, uh, to pressure the passer. And I've got to ask you one last question since I have someone that played in the NFL and someone that's also into the analytics world, a topic we debate all the time here on Wharton Moneyball, momentum. Does momentum exist? And if it does exist... Who do you think has it going into this game? And do you think as a player, a momentum shifts in the middle of a game? Does momentum exist in your mind? Yeah, no, uh, and I've, I've listened to you guys talk about this a ton. It's, uh, momentum is, uh, I think it exists, but it exists in a different way than it's been discussed. Uh, I mean, the whole hot hand, uh, uh, I think, is a fallacy when it comes to the NFL because the ball gets distributed greatly across. So it's not like you have... Certainly, um, the way to think about it, I think, is in terms of how a team or an offense or, or a defense is in sync with each other. The, um, the especially on offense, you really it's re- you need to have eleven guys seeing the defense in the same way, reacting the same way, being on the same page, and really kind of following the script. Um, if one guy. Uh, blows his assignment, the chance of a negative play goes up by like a tenfold factor. So it's uh, it really is a matter of everyone being on the same page. The quarterback, the, the wide receiver breaks at the right time when the quarterback is in, is exactly where he expects the, um, the quarterback expects him to be. And so when that, it's my belief that when you're really in sync, it is – there is some correlation on previous uh, play to next play um, because you're just like everyone, the, the engine's hitting all, all cylinders, everyone's seeing the things the same way. And, but then there's also the, that's where coaching street, uh, uh, um, game strategy really comes into play where you can wind up coming out of halftime and there's some big adjustment that the defense makes that could potentially disrupt uh, momentum and the momentum could shift in the other way. And so those kinds of game strategy can really um, make, make or break a, uh, in, um, the, uh, the momentum of a game. And obviously a turnover or something like that is uh, hugely disruptive and probably unlike any other uh, sport in terms of changing momentum, but uh, those also have to be taken into account. Well, Todd, I'd like to thank you for, first of all, for being a longtime listener, for a caller, and now as a guest here on Morton Moneyball, we've been talking to Todd Stusey, former garden tackle for the Vikings, Panthers, Buccaneers, and Rams, two-time Pro Bowler, but the Super Bowl must bring back memories for you, and of course, co-founder of Potentiometrics. So, Todd, thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Look forward to another chance, hopefully. Yeah, we'll definitely have you back on soon. Thank you so much. So this has been the first three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We, For those of you that are listening, we have an exciting guest after the break, Joey Logano, well-known and top-level NASCAR driver. So we're going to talk about himself, how he trains, what he's thinking about for the upcoming season, the role of analytics in NASCAR. So stay with us and join us after the break. 
Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Thanks again to our sound engineer and associate producer, Danielle Bruno. If that music doesn't get you thinking about sports statistics and business, I don't know what else will. We've been having the last hour of our show. We've had two great guests, Gil Alexander, who's talked to us about sports betting and the expertise involved there. And, of course, we had Todd Stussy, uh, former guard and lineman uh, in the NFL, 14-year career, uh, talking to us about potentiometrics and his transition, if you'd like, from the NFL uh, to kind of in the metrics and analytics business. So, guys, um, at this part of our show, we're, we're have another guest in the last half hour, but before we bring in our guest, you know, um, a couple weeks ago when I was just here by myself, um, our producer Matt Datz and I played a little game I'd like to play with you guys. I call it the over-under game. Okay, so this is requiring you to have some belief about predicting, let's say, the future of someone's athletic career and how much he or she might win Mm -hmm. in the future of their athletic career. So four came to my mind. Four different players and over-unders came to my mind. The first one, since we started with the Australian Open, is Roger Federer and the number of majors he will win. Now, my over-under number is 21 and a half. Now, just so you know, he's at 20. So do you think, Adi, I'll start with you, then I'll go to Shane. Roger Federer, over under 21 and a half majors. I think he'll go over that. You think he'll go over? Yep. Okay. He only needs two. Only needs two. That's uh, remarkable, I guess. It's sort of crazy. Uh, but, I mean, I, I, think he's, uh, I think he will compete in the French. I think. But he, you agree he's unlikely to win. The, like, if you're computing expected yeah, number of wins. I think the French is a write-off. So but let's, um, but, yeah, let's but assume, he's still got some Wimbledons and U.S. Opens to play. Oh, yeah. I think he has a whole bunch. So you think he's and, um, got... If, and if I had said over under 23 and a half, where would you no. have gone? So you think Lower. it's 22, I think he's 23. Got, I, think, I think basically 21 and a half, I think, is a pretty good target. I really think it's a decent I, I, target. I but did I think, not randomly select but it. But I, would, I, would, I, I think he has a, a better than 50% chance of going over it. But, of course, if he doesn't, it's not going to be shocking by any measure because it's right around, the, right around the mark. And, Shane, where do you sit? I, I think he goes over, too. I think he's able to win... I'm with Audi on this one. I think he's able to win two more. I, I, I'm confident he can win two more in the next despite, few years, but not four more. And despite the fact that I think we all agree at this point, if he had even a semi-serious injury at this point, oh, it yeah, would end his toast. career. Yeah. So you're even integrating that into your yep. expected win calculation. Okay. I mean, what's he, he's going to take some time off. He's really, he may or may not play in, in the... In the in he's, winning, he's winning like two a year all, right well, now, right? right? if you count last year, he won yeah. two, and he won one this year. But yeah. the previous five years, he won zero. That's right. Right. So it's, but there's, I mean, look at the competition just doesn't look like it's as fierce as it was in the previous mm-hmm. five years. I think we all say the following. If he was to play healthy, as healthy as a 36, 37-year-old can be, if he plays eight more majors, he's winning two of them. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if he plays for until he's 38, 39, yeah. he's going to win two of them. Yeah. All, All right. right, let's go to the next one. Tom Brady, over under six and a half Super Bowls. Oh, no. Under, under, under. Under six under, and a half. Yeah. Oh, so you're winning two more? You're winning two more. I well, he's got under. a game on Sunday. Yeah, I know. I understand. He's got one on Sunday. But they, that's no, a 50% chance. All right, so now expected number is a half. And, then you're, and you're saying he's got – basically what you're saying, he's got uh, three three in him, including this year. So two yeah. more after this year. No way. So I just want to make sure so. for all of us the math so that you guys are doing. Yeah. For him to have an expected number of – let's even say one and a half, right on six and a half – He's got to play in three more Super Bowls. And this one he's got. One we know he's coming. All right. So now he's <laughs> yeah, got to play in two more. Right. Two more got after that. that one yeah. No way. Yeah, I don't think so. No. I mean, I, I, I think it's 
It's His great that he made it to another one, but I mean, yeah, no. I, I like the so. way that, by the way, you've broken down the calculation. Yeah. And by the way, just so we're clear, if he were to win the game on Sunday and I said over under six and a half, where are you then? I so would still, so I then, would still so then be under. Still, he has to like. I He'd still, still have to get under. two more. Yeah, yeah I, that's right. You're well, still right. under. I mean, I've got to get to at least one and win it. Yeah. No, no, I got that. <laughs> right. But the expected number expected would be two. Number. I don't see it. Yeah, I don't see it either. All right, let's go to another one. So, for those listeners who didn't know, um, besides watching tennis this weekend, I was watching a lot of golf. Uh, Tiger Woods played. How would he do? Did pretty well. Um, let me just say, he started out, he made the cut, which was already a start. Just so our listeners know, roughly half the players in a golf tournament, 140 players start roughly, 70 and ties get to play the final two rounds. You are cut if you're not in the top 70 after the first two rounds. Tiger had to birdie the 18th hole on the second round to make the cut, which he did. He ended up tied for 23rd in the tournament. So of the 70 that made the cut, he was tied for 23rd. He played four rounds, all of them at par or better. His first round was even, then minus one, minus two, even. So he ended up at minus three. So my over-under on Tiger Woods is 14 and a half majors. And just to be clear, he's at 14. So you're predicting that... Whether he, well, it's a funny bit. Will he ranger? ever win you're, a you're major again? You're essentially saying he's no. got a 50% chance or, or I saw, I take major. the under. I don't think he's going to win another one. Well, well, let's, tell me, ask I'm, a question. I'm not a uh, golf uh, aficionado. How did he look? So let me say, um, as his driving of the of the golf ball was awful. He literally, in his career... He's always been a good driver. No, no, I understand that. Yeah. He's never hit less fairways than he hit in this tournament. However, his length was amazing. His short game, according to everybody, was, a matter of fact, the best they've maybe ever seen it. And that's... In, I mean, to, to score... If you're not driving the ball well and hitting your irons well, your short game yeah, better I be mean, good. And his short game was great. But I don't great. think he was ever a great—I mean, he was a very powerful driver. Always hit the one not of the longest, accurate. but never not was accurate. accurate. No, but I'm saying this was— This you know, was even ways, worse Yeah, I mean, the classic is. way to think about it is how many drives do you get into the fairway and how many greens do you make in regulation. What that means is if you're on a par four, you should be on the green in two. If you're on a par five, right. you should be in three it, or less. He made. How old is he, Olsen? Well, that's the next relevant question. He's 42 years old. Okay, so that actually is not over the hill for a golfer. Obviously, he's been playing for many, many years, and he's had terrible back problems for years. I'm going to be contrarian, at least con- contrary to, to Shane. I'm going to give him, I'm going to go over. All right, but let's just do a little math on this. Just to let you know. There's the only oldest, been one well, that's so, won a major that old, right? No, no, there's been more no. than one. So Jack Nicholas. Uh, I mean, Jack Nicholas was 46. Yeah, Jack Nicholas was 46. I, I believe Hale Irwin won a major at 45. Okay. We, I understand misses don't count. Tom Watson was a six-foot putt away from winning the yeah. British Open at age 59. That's he had a six-foot par putt to win the British Open at age 59. Um, I believe Phil Mickelson won the British Open at age 43 or 4. So there have been, let's say in the history of golf, there's maybe been seven or eight majors yeah. won in total for someone his age or greater. But let's just do the math, the same math we have doing for Brady or Federer. Let's say let's pretend Tiger stays healthy, and let's say he stays a viable golfer for the next. Let's be conservative and say five, five years. years. So he's got twenty majors to play. Can he win one of those twenty? Well, if you figure the the odds are, it doesn't. <laughs> you put it that way, it doesn't look so great. I agree with you. When yeah. you put yeah. it that way, because just to let you know the odds in Tiger's heyday. He was winning, just to give you a base rate, this is where things change. He was winning one and four. Yeah. He was winning one and four maj- majors. Matter of fact, he was winning over 20% of the golf tournaments he played, which is remarkable. Yeah. And now it shows you how times change. 
All we're saying, you just have to win one of 20. And it you and I are be. both saying, saying, that means he's, no, he's got a one in 20 chance. So. Is he one of the top? Will he ever be, for the next five years, will, be, will he be one of the world's top 25 golfers or so, roughly? And the answer is, we don't think so. Probably not. No. Right, because that's a good way to think about it. Can he reach back to the top 20 in the world? Consistently for Consist- five years. Well, no, but let's go. Let's talk about that. You point. might want to invest in the variance here. It might just be like, can he shoot from out of well, nowhere I was gonna, at one tournament? That's what I was going to ask. That's exactly variance, what yeah. I was going to ask. He doesn't because, have to consistently make these things. And he doesn't even. have to be top 20. Like, no? Maybe he does the Roger Federer strategy, which is, you know what? I'm not the 25-year-old Tiger Woods. I'm only going to play tournaments. Well, golf isn't tennis, folks. Let's be honest. Does so it still doesn't rip very, your body the way they tennis Well, does. I mean, ask Tiger how his last few years have gone. If well, it's that's not more injury. Your body. I think. Well, it, I, right. I, I that's don't think what we're talking about. But I think the decline and the decay of of a tennis player is much more correlated with the amount of tennis they play. I mean, we don't. We neither of. I don't think any of us sitting around the table have actually run the numbers. But but the the my proposition is you can play twenty five golf tournaments in a, in a year. Yes, yes, you can. Yeah. Twenty five tennis tournaments will rack you. Where we're just be, yeah. There's no question. Tennis well, right. is much more. Vent it's says much event. harder. That's right. It's much harder. But, but I like I like Shane's point. Matter of fact, our our co-host Cade Massey has talked about this many times on the show. You always take the field in golf, which is to get down. Like how many golfers do you need to take? Like we talked about this yeah. a number of times. Right now, if I told you the French Open. How many? Let's take the men's side and the women's side. Let's even say Serena's coming back. How many men's tennis players do I need to take to where you get to 50% probability to win the French? One. One, right? <laughs> That's right. And in golf, how many men's golfers would it take We've for you done to get to analysis. 50% it's of the masters? Nine. It's like 10. Yeah, it's yeah. like 10. So Tiger doesn't have to be the best player yeah. in the world. No. Just on one now, week, he has to be the best now golfer. Now, he also, he also could try to play with variants. You can't necessarily do that in other sports, but in golf, you can probably start with a high-variant strategy. Like, to be more risky. Be more risky, and therefore have a, a much higher probability of not even making the cut, but in co- to be compensated by a higher probability of winning. Ah, so you're bringing up an, a, a great important point, which is, let's imagine Tiger's only goal for the rest of his career, only goal, was to win another major. You're suggesting something that's very interesting. In each of those 20, play super aggressively, that leads to high variance. You know what? I might win the tournament, and I might not make the I'm not playing for 10th. 10th is yeah. worth tenth is nothing. Not right. So that's it. I love your point, Adi, because it brings the outcome that you're trying to maximize to the strategy you should take to maximize that strategy. It's a it's a great I just, point. I mean, I don't know if if, if kind of like those and strategic do that? Deci- well, right. He's not going to do that. Are those strategic decisions going to be enough to kind of compensate for him not being as good as other players, right? No, I mean, like, I, I mean, yes, I guess he can drive the green a couple more times on a par five and stuff like that. And uh, but I just bring up best. another point, which I thought you know you just I said. I don't know about can the you do size that? Like, that. it's easy. Right, well, that's the, that's the. Does he says, want to do that? He's no, no, not. He doesn't forget, care about forget our bet. Want <laughs> I know, but forget want. Is it that easy just to flip the switch in golf yeah. and say, all right, I'm going to be the so. aggressive golfer right now, and I'm going to go. In other words, it's easier. Like people say in tennis, you got to go for your shots, go for the lines. In golf, is it as easy th- to just I, flip I, the switch and play I think the high variance strategy? Say, I think you can because those are decisions that you make, right? So at each, at each approach to every every hole, you can decide. You sit there, you have the yeah. time, you do talk with your aggressive you get, line. You, do we do it this way? That's what they're always talking I, about, I, right? I just Before think, they play. Yeah, I just think, again, I don't know about the effect size on those different strategic decisions, whether it's consequential or not. Right. We don't know Espe- that. Especially given that you can, you're not going to be able to execute perfectly, right? So I, I don't know if we'll actually... All right. Well, let me move on to my next over-under. So the Golden State Warriors 
at three and a half titles. Now, just to remind everyone, they've won two. Right? They've won no. two titles together. They lost to the Cavaliers one year. You mean in the year. next few years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm okay. saying this, let's this, call it this, this, team. this Golden State Warrior team, which is primarily, you know, Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, and Draymond Green. Right. Does this team win more than three and a half titles? And they've already won two, so you're well, looking I'm, at... Durant was not in the first one, but yes. I understand. The, do they win two more, two or more titles? Uh, can you give me a little bit more information as far as how long these guys are signed for? What are the contracts? Curry that's, just uh, That's a good question. Curry and Durant are signed. I don't know. I think Clay Thompson is the wild card here. I don't think he has signed for as long. And Draymond Green, I just don't know. I, I don't yeah. know. But I know, let's assume Curry and Durant, who are, we would call the two are the, be- the, two yeah, are the best no, players, they're, 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 they're going to the be on the team. Pieces. But let's assume, let's even assume they're under contract for the next five years. Let's suppose I even put How that out looking? there. How are they looking right now? Didn't good. play great last night, but they are the number one seed in the NBA. I mean, they have the best plus minus. They have the best uh, we one know loss that, but record. What, who's coming down? Who's challenging them? How much? What well, do they have to make great, in the finals? Great question. You just asked that. So the Houston Rockets are in the West. Um, just to let you know, a first thing, a first time ever happened last night in the NBA. So I know you guys may not be aware of this. So you guys know what a triple double is. You Absolutely. have double digit points, rebounds, and assists. How, let's imagine I told you someone had a triple-double. They had a triple-double. What would you think would be a reasonable number of points to also have in that triple-double? Like, what would be a really 25. impressive... 25, yeah. right? Yeah, 25 right. to 30. Right. Suppose I told you James Harden last night had a 60-point triple-double. What? The first time ever in NBA history. That's he scored man. 60 points last night, but also had 11 assists and 10 rebounds. Is anybody else on his team, or did he just play the whole How do you have that many assists if you're yeah. getting 60 points? Well, that's what we're talking about. That's What's amazing. interesting, but here's part of the interesting, another piece of data. Did they win the game? <laughs> they did. No, no, it's a great question. Yeah. They yeah. did win the game, but he actually, this shows you efficiency, he got 60 points in 30 shots. Wow. So besides making a lot of threes, he went to the foul line yeah. a lot. So it's not yeah. like he took 50 shots in the game. He didn't right. take half the team's shots. He did it on 30 shots. But just to let you know, so you asked me who's catching up. Yeah. Houston is only two games back. And I, I know this is maybe a meaningless stat. There's three. The three top players, one might argue, on Houston are James Harden, Chris Paul, who they just got from the Clippers, and this guy Clint Capella, who's their center. When the three of them have played together this season, they're 20-0. and 0. Now, that includes beating the Warriors twice in that stretch. So I don't know if that's worth anything. You ask me who could catch them, I would say in the West it's the Warriors. In the East... The Rockets. The Rockets, yeah. I would, sorry, the Rockets in the West... In the East, maybe it's the Celtics. Yeah, maybe the East, it's, I mean, I, maybe think, I feel like Cavs. at least this. I don't know. At least look, this season, off on the Cavs yeah. lost to the Pistons last night. The Cavs look terrible. Yeah, I mean, and who? I mean, again, this will be the true test of my theory that it really doesn't matter what happens in the regular season. We will see if the Cavs somehow get turn into it the, on. Uh, I mean, turn it on, but they look weaker. I mean, yeah, they do. I mean, so, who, so I almost the, feel the like Cavs. the Warriors. Oh, I feel like are actually dealing with diminished l- competition this season relative to last year. This it's it's shocking to say this. The Cavs are only three games Above. ahead of the playoffs. The yeah. playoffs. So where are they relative to the, the Sixers in the playoffs? Right, so the Sixers are currently, I may have this slightly wrong, the Sixers are 24 and 23. We lost two in a row. We played, we've had a tough road trip. Yeah. We won the first game at San Antonio, which was great, but we lost to the Bucks and we lost to, I forget who else we played, maybe the Rock. I forget who else. We played someone else, maybe it was the Rockets. Um, no, no, Oklahoma City. So we lost to those two teams. The Cavaliers, I think, have 21 losses. 
mm-hmm. they're in like the three or four spot. Just to let you know, if the Sixers Very go tight. on a five or six game winning streak, the Sixers could be in the three spot in the Eastern Conference, except for the Celtics and the yeah. Raptors. There's like literally six teams that have between 21 and 23 losses. Like anybody yeah. could end up with home field. So no, the Cavs have All come right. way well, back to earth. And not just in wins, losses. Right after last night's loss, their plus minus points for the season may be in the negative. Yeah. They, and they're also, the, I think it, last time I looked, they were the second worst defensive team in the league in terms of yes, points given up. and that's exactly up. the kind of thing that we see turns out completely on a dime in the playoffs. So, well, uh, you know, because they actually start they trying. They actually start playing. All right, so I'm going to go over. You're going over three and a half. Yep. They'll win two. And by the way, thanks to our producer, Matt Datz. He's told me that um, essentially the core team is, um, signed for, is signed for one more year. Durant through 2018-19. Oh. Curry's 2022, so he's long-term. Durant 2018-19, sorry, Durant, yeah, 2018-19, Clay Thompson 2018-19, and Draymond Green, Green 2019-20. So there's this actually, year and next year guaranteed, and then after that... Then I actually would reverse it. I think they probably would win one or the next two with very high probability. And after that, it goes down pretty dramatically. Yeah. Because they're going to lose. The team's going to fall I, apart. Well, apart. I, it's, except if they win another one, then these players are, are more likely, likely to, to stay. stay, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, I mean, just the way that like kind of like cap works in, in the NBA allows you to kind of maintain these super teams. I'm going to take the over. All right, take the over. Well, guys, by the way, let's go. I, over Where under, uh, over unders. I'm glad you guys enjoyed we playing over under. Well, we now, gonna... now what we're doing is, as we always do here on Morton Moneyball, and when it's the NFL, this is our last week before last week of the NFL season. We're going to go to our Moneyball matchup. Now, this is the music that really gets you into the mood for the NFL, for statistics, uh, for analytics. Um, And we're also joined by Dan Loney. Dan, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Great to be here. Good, and of course you can also listen to Dan. Of course, in the next two hours, ten to twelve here on. And he'll be talking Business two Radio. hours of football too. I imagine. No, not not today. No, not today. <laughs> Saving that for Friday, and then again on Monday because right. you know, yeah, the victory not? parade. Well, I'll, I'll say the that in my trade parade. So, there we maybe, go. Maybe. So why don't we start? Um, matter of fact, we'll probably start with the person that maybe knows the most about this, which would be Dan Loney. So Dan, tell us how you see the game going on Sunday, um, and you know, if you were, might as well add to this in the last minute or two we have. If you had to bet on the game, you know, Patriots you are get? four, four and a half. Well, Where are you line, on the game outcome? The points. Well, what do you want? I, I mean, all of the history of the Patriots wins suggests that you bet the Eagles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, when you close game, when you, yeah, Patriots when you, have never oh, won a Super the, Bowl. Oh, take the points. Take, take the, the points the because of the fact that the, the, if memory serves me, Shane, last, last year was actually their biggest point difference yeah. that they won and by that went six to overtime. points. And the professionals, overtime, by the way, are right. taking the taking the the Patriots with the money line. Right, exactly. I, I just I, I just think that this is going to be. I think this has the opportunity to be one of the best Super Bowls ever. I, I really do. I think I think the way the Eagles are playing right now gives them the opportunity to, to really be in this game. But y- you cannot disrespect the fact of the history of what the Patriots have done, what Brady has done, what Belichick has done. I, I just think that uh, and I, I think this is going to be a very, very good game. And your pick is then what? Well, I, I mean, I'm from Philadelphia, so I, I've got. That's be, I'm why gonna, the I, professionals I'm, take the Eagles. Eagles. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> they take the take the, take pay, the pay, exactly, Patriots exactly. Yeah. on the money. I I think I think if they if the Eagles win, it is going to be a situation where it's going to be another close game, 
and I think it's going to be anywhere from three to six points late. And, and I honestly believe it's going to be another situation of Tom Brady with the ball late in the game with the opportunity to win the game. And whether or not he does or not, we'll, we will see. Yeah. I, as an Eagles fan, am hoping that he does not. And we're all, so. I'm actually hoping he doesn't even have the ball. Right. Adi Weiner, what's your, we have two minutes. What's your prediction? Well, my, my, my prediction or my desire? Prediction. My, my prediction is, is the Pats, and uh, I'm giving up the points. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So Pat's minus where four, four and a half somewhere. Actually, in that I spread. think they're giving up too little. I mean, I think they're probably a five or six point favorite, and they're only giving up four and a half. I think it's the right bet. My heart, of course, is with Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. of course, with one hundred percent. What's yeah. interesting, of course, is if one looks at kind of the whether it's Massey Peabody line or strength line for most of the season, the Patriots were six to seven point favorites yeah. over the Eagles for most of the season. So actually, there's been a. So I think it's a good bet to give up the points. All right. Mr. Patriot, All right. Shane Jensen. All right. I mean, uh, the Patriots always, it's always close. It's always a heart attack. I just want them to blow out an opponent occasionally. I mean, it would kind of be sad for them to blow out Philadelphia. I do want this a good game. This is not so where gonna, you want it. Yeah, I'm going to cheer. I'm going to cheer for a close game, I guess. Um, you betting? My heart can't take it. Yeah, and if you had to bet with the spread. By the way, oh, I think I think I think the Pats win, but I think the Pats win by like two points. By I the think way, it'll, it'll, so take the money line. One one bet. last Brady last minute match. How, how Shane? How many Eagles fans do you have in your classes? Oh my god! Well, all of them. Okay. All of them. So we can tell them that you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll be hiding. Yeah. All right, well, guys, this has been two great hours. Of course, I'll make my last pick. Uh, I'm staying with it from the beginning. I'm going with the Eagles, and I'm taking the Eagles and the money line. So this has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball. Thanks to our guest, Gil Alexander. Thanks to our guest, Todd Stusey. Thanks to our producer, Matt Datz. Thanks to our sound engineer and our associate producer, Daniel Bruno. Uh, and thank you for putting on the Rocky music to get us into this fighting spirit for the Fighting Eagles. This has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball. We'll be here next week. See you next week here on on Wharton Moneyball.